You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So welcome to Rock Solid People, a podcast about amazing individuals in the disability space. I have with me Joe McIntyre, a support coordination coach with Ozcare Support and someone who I am very excited to be talking to. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. I feel pretty chuffed to be here. This is the first interview that I've done and probably the first podcast that you've done as well. So we're excited to see where this goes. As I've just explained to you, the idea of the podcast is to talk to individuals who are in the disability sector and to try and find out and glean some information as to what we think are the challenges facing us and what we're all excited about in the future of the NDIS and how we can overcome some of the challenges. But I want to start, I guess, Joe, a little bit before we talk about the NDIS. I want to talk to you about the fact that you're, uh, you've got a large family, haven't you, Joe? Yeah, I do. I have four sons. They're all young adults and they have partners and I now have grandchildren. So our family's growing at a rate of knots at the moment. Fantastic. And so do you ever get the whole crew all together? Oh, absolutely. A bit tricky at the moment with COVID sort of been quite challenging and one of my sons lives in France. We haven't seen him since December. But yeah, we're very close family. We get together Christmas, you know, we travel to Brisbane where most of the boys reside and and their families. So family events for us are really important. And I'm also one of six children with my siblings and myself. We remain, you know, pretty close, tight-knit family. Getting together is really important. And uh, my biggest question on that, because I come from a very small family, uh, I only have one brother and I lost my mother a while ago in 2000 and uh, we don't get together as a family very often and, and neither my father or my brother were close to their siblings. So I'd like to be keen to understand how do you deal with the family politics? <laughs> you just deal with it, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we're all individuals. I, I guess it's about respecting our personalities and our beliefs and, and yeah, we're all unique. So uh, I think that in that uniqueness, it brings us together as well because the conversations become uh, really interesting and, you know, some conversations become debates. But, you know, the bottom line is that we are family and I lost my mum two years ago and in a, in a real strange way that brought our family closer together because my three older siblings are half-siblings. When mum and dad divorced when I was seven, it really tore apart our family and, and in mum's passing, it brought us back together just through grief and loss, it has really united our family. And my three half-siblings that are older are much older than what I am because they were all in their teens when mum and dad were together. So, you know, they're all their late 60s and early 70s now. So there's a bit of a generation gap there, but it, it sort of, you know, the care and love that we have for each other is really important. And, you know, those conversations we've travelled to, to visit each other, etc. And and it's really good getting together. So I think, you know, with the family politics, you put that aside and the relationship's more important than what any differences are. And you mentioned that the uh, the passing of your mother had brought everyone together. Was there some regret that or curiosity? I'm always curious as to why it takes a death to bring people together. And I understand why, but I'm always curious as to whether we thought that whether we may have been better to have overcome those challenges or or maybe reached out in the past when when your mum was alive, for example, to have bridged those gaps and to have that experience with your mother. 
Absolutely. And those conversations happened when mum passed in relation to, you know, gosh, it's taken this. This is, you know, at, at the wake after mum's funeral was the first time all six of us had been together at the same place ever, which is extraordinary. Crazy. It was quite an eye opener for all of us to go, wow, what, what have we been doing all these years, you know, that it, it's taken mum's passing to get us all together. We had been in contact with one another, but not in the same way as myself and my two brothers who, who are mum and dad's children, didn't have the same relationship with the half-siblings as, as I did with my two brothers. So I guess it's with anything, isn't it? Like tragedy brings people together. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's probably human nature that we want to be there for one another and, and we are remorseful of, of, you know, past events and why didn't we do this and, you know, the would-ofs, should-ofs, could-ofs. <laughs> but as I said, mum's passing, it brought life to our family and made us realise how lucky we are to be part of a really big family and, it, yeah, just bring, you know, bringing us all closer together. Mm. And, and being, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, obviously, you know, spending time with family, spending time with your children, with your grandchildren. How many grandchildren do you have now? I've got two little grandsons. Fantastic. And, and I think that, that you know, that those, those moments, as you say, that you spend with those family and pets are really are the, the, the golden moments and the cherished moments. And, and I think what your role is – and what you facilitate as a support coordinator. And for those, I guess, you don't know what a support coordinator is, but maybe let's, uh, let's, let's delve into a little bit of the, the nuances and the, 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 the lexicon of the NDIS. What would your description of uh, a support coordinator be, Joe? Oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so the support coordinator position was created by the NDIS to obviously support people to coordinate their supports. You know, support coordinator works closely with the participant to understand the NDIS plan, what they've been funded for, what that funding includes and what it doesn't include, and then to assist that person to, like, reach out, engage with services and supports that will assist that person to achieve or work towards achieving their NDIS goals. So it's a, it's a really broad position. You know, they do say that, you know, we're not advocates, we're not case managers, but unfortunately, by default, not by design, you do fall into that space quite often because there's no one else, sometimes no one else there to, to fill that role. But, you know, bottom line is that you're there to support the participant to utilise their NDIS plan to achieve their goals. And it's, I think the interesting nuance of exactly what you, you described there is that whilst you're supporting the participant, you're inherently supporting the people who support or the people who support that person as well. So you're supporting their family. And I think that's, that's almost the, one of the largest learnings that I had around when I first started uh, as a support coordinator and then growing Auscare support as a support coordination provider is in fact, you're dealing with many more characters and many more individuals and many more nuances than just the participant themselves. You're dealing with families. You're dealing with a lot of people who have, who have not vested interests in, in a bad way, but, but interest in an individual, um, whether it's good or bad, and we've seen both, but uh, you're dealing with the politics of families uh, a lot of the time. Uh, and that, to me, is one of the, ma the major complications. And I think the sort of the unspoken, I don't see many, many articles around how a support coordinator is supposed to deal with the time and, I guess, challenges of the family. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, sometimes, you know, it's not just family. There's lots of stakeholders involved in people's lives and, and you do build relationships and you are supporting services, providers, support workers, private contractors, families, friends, neighbours, 
it's a really broad role that we play in a person's life. Yeah, and when those all come together and are, are all on, on the same path, then it can be an amazing, uh, I guess, opportunity to be part of, of that small community or a greater community. But when it's uh, a challenge, it can be extremely challenging for everybody involved. And I think sometimes a lot of that challenge lies on the support coordinator to try and, as you say, be a, be an advocate or be a case manager or be their support coordinator or to try and uh, navigate a pathway which is inherently complex. Um, and I guess I'm, the, the point I'm making is that when I've um, – you know, watched you in action. I, I am in awe of your capacity to to navigate. I think some complex clients, some complex individuals, some complex communities. And I, I just wanted to touch on, I guess, what I thought were the characteristics that you. I mean, how is it that you're? And I, don't, I know you, you said you don't particularly like accolades and you don't like awards, but how is it that you manage to do what you do to such a high level? And how do we distill some of the Joe McIntyre that you know that I, I, I would love, as I say, I'd love to clone you <laughs> because I think the NDS would be a better place if we had even just one more of you. But what are the characteristics that you have that make a good support coordinator? Oh, well, first off, thank you for the compliment. I'll take that. It's really lovely of you to say that. Wow, characteristics that make a good support coordinator. I mean, I just bring myself. I bring myself and, and my life and my learnings. I'm really respectful, incredibly empathetic to to people's journeys and, and recognise that we're all individuals and, and there are, you know, a lot of challenging situations that we do have to navigate, but that's why we do the job that we do. And keeping it real is is so important. It can be very stressful at times, and but it's it's about that determination and and recognizing that in in our role, you know, we're making a, a massive difference in some people's lives, and and assisting them to you know live their best life possible the way that they want to through their NDIS plan. So yeah, I guess it is. It, it, the characteristics are, are myself. You know, it, it's my life and my learnings. I've got you know, in the disability services now for over 20 years. And then in my own personal life, you know, with my four boys, my oldest son, very intelligent young man and quite challenging as a child. And for for many years, you know, we were clueless as to what was happening for him behaviour-wise and, and his lack of attention, et cetera. And, you know, he was the naughty boy in kindergarten and, and it was really challenging. The, the school back then, I'm talking, you know, 26 years ago, he was five and we didn't get the support that people get now. And he went undiagnosed for many years until we finally did receive a diagnosis of Asperger's. So I, I have a lot of empathy for people navigating a system when they've got no support around them, they don't know what's out there, and quite often you don't know until you ask. So through that and then through working in the various positions I've had in disability services, I, I feel like I've got a really good knowledge of, I guess, the labyrinth of services and supports that are out there. And I, I have that true empathy for participants and their families and their carers and partners, whoever it might be, that find it really challenging and overwhelming. So that support coordination role plays such a pivotal role, I guess, in, in people accessing what they need. Mm. And I'm just going to come back to, if you don't mind, just talking about when your son was diagnosed and, and what that changes and what effect that had on you and your family in terms of, I'm, I'm assuming that it went from he was the naughty kid to, the, you know, there's a reason for his behaviours. And as a result of that, that it opened up a whole channel of investigative approach to it. And how do we help him to, to, to deal with it? 
was that the transition? Was there a bit of a sort of a seeing the light in terms of uh, being able to help him to, to, to deal with what he was going through? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it was just like navigating in the dark when he was a little boy and the diagnosis didn't come through until he was a young adult. So it took a very long time. Okay. Um, okay. So it was, you know, he was um, diagnosed with ADHD and ADD and, you know, none of the interventions, medication, etc., suited him or worked for him. Once Nathan received his the diagnosis, it explained everything. It was like a little bit of a light bulb moment of, oh, like, you know, how come this took so long to get to where we are? And not that I, I'm a fan of labelling everything either, but but once we received that diagnosis, we were able to investigate and understand the differences that he did have. And he's a super intelligent young man. I mean, he's now completing his PhD in environmental genetics. So, you know, it, it really, I guess it, it just explained everything. It was that sense of relief, that sense of, gosh, I wish we had known about this 15 years ago so that we could have supported him better and it would have made us better parent. It would have made the school a better place for him to be if they had understood, especially these days, around the sensory issues with kids with Asperger's and the way they think and, you know, uh, their likes and dislikes. So, yeah, there was a, a, a massive amount of relief to actually receive that diagnosis. Yeah, and and for, from my perspective, it it it's it, I guess it frustrates me when I still see families or children or individuals who are coming into the system later or latterly in life where they could have had some interventions or diagnosis or some some assistance, whatever it may have been earlier on. And I think that when we, whenever I am talking to individuals, almost everybody that you talk to has somebody who could use some help to navigate into the NDIS. Whether they'll be eligible for a plan or not, but just to be part of the the the, the whole overwhelming process is is a struggle for a lot of people to to get involved. And, and I think that's one of the things that I've I, I feel as a support coordinator we can, whether it's on a paid basis or whether it's pro bono, whether it's just as a, a as a help as a as an anecdotal chat. I think that's one of the big benefits that I see as as what we can do as an organisation or individuals like yourself can do just to help people to get onto the the trajectory, the journey of the NDIS. Oh, absolutely. And and I've been approached countless times by people that are, you know, just waving the flag, please help us. We don't know what to do. You know, we how do we get a diagnosis? Who do we go to? There's so many hoops that you've got to jump through in the application for the NDIS to prove your disability, to prove that it's lifelong, to prove that it has a disabling effect on your life. So many families just don't know where to start. So that support coordination role is is really helpful when it comes to assisting families to navigate that. Mm. And I'm just going to talk on, so obviously we, we, we know that um, being sport coordinator can be stressful. I'm sure being a parent to four boys can be stressful. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, how do you deal with, with stress, Joe? I mean, you've now taken on an additional role. You've, you've got some huge responsibilities at Care Support. Thank you for taking that, that role on. But, you know, how do you deal with in, your, your own stress? Because you always seem to me to be extremely calm and I guess, is, is it a bit like the duckling swimming furiously yeah. underwater? <laughs> I, I quite often use that analogy. I'm just like a duck. And um, it is. It, you just, I don't know, I, I manage my levels of anxiety and stress, which, I, you know, I do experience a high level of anxiety. I'm, I'm not great at public speaking and, and I do get all that anxiety, et cetera, in crowds, people, et cetera. But I hold it together. I don't know how I hold it together. I just do. I, I guess that's what life's taught me. 
you know, and I'll, I'll do the, the meditation and breathing exercises, et cetera, to help me calm myself, et cetera. But I, I guess, you know, every job or you know, position that I've held in the last 20 years or so has come with quite a high level of responsibility. And with that naturally does come stressful situations and you learn how to manage it, you know, and you'll have your moments where you just need to have a bit of a rant or, or a bit of a debrief, et cetera. But, yeah, it, it's just about managing those levels of stress and anxiety and when things go wrong, you know, we can't control everything and, and that's something that's taken me a long time to learn and accept is that, you know, I don't have a magic wand, I can't fix everyone, I can't fix everything. I'm not a fixer. I'm, I'm a person here to assist people. So um, when I first entered the, the disability services area one of the positions I've held um, was as a behavior intervention consultant and majority of the time working with families with young children with autism with quite challenging behaviors and and that's where I learned that I don't have that magic wand I just wanted to fix everyone and it was really stressful etc and then I from that learned that no you know I don't have that magic wand and, and it is stressful it's very you know taxing working with families that are living with so much stress in their lives and and so by using, you know, the skills and, and knowledge that I was supporting them to cope with their stress, I then learned how to cope with my own stress as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, when, you, when you talk about those, that assistance uh, of, of helping, and, and we've mentioned it before, I mean, what, the, whilst we're, we're doing a job, there is a huge amount of reward that is received. And, and I think when when we cut the you know cut through the, all all of the, the noise around the NDIS and we and we look at what uh, what we do as a, as an organisation or what the NDIS does as as a as a an amazing once in a lifetime social reform. Um, I always like to say that about ninety five percent of the people that are dealing with the NDIS are better off than they are. Uh, now I don't I just came up with that number. I mean it's sort of you know, my my gut feel. I, I, I know that's come out of the fact that I think that the majority of people that we deal with are better off under the NDIS than they were previously. Now I don't have any real life experience. Experience particularly of the prior, but what's your take on that? Are, are people better off under the NDIS? Oh, absolutely. So the people that have been fortunate enough to be accepted to NDIS and for those that I've worked alongside, I feel the majority, I totally agree with you that the majority of people are much better off um, in the NDIS environment. The funding is person-centred. They have more choice and control, which is obviously, you know, the buzz phrase for the NDIS compared to my previous roles where it was state-based block funded. We're organized, we did as an organization, we made the rules, we set up the programs and everyone kind of fitted into one box, whether it be a day program or a respite setting. So, you know, I do believe that the NDIS has provided participants with the opportunity to access so much more services and supports. And, and the majority of people that I've worked with will actually state, you know, I can't believe the difference that this has made in my life. So, and for some people, that's not the case. For some people, they find it actually quite challenging and there's a lot of support that goes in to guiding people through that NDIS labyrinth in, in regards to understanding what the NDIS can actually do for them and, and it opens the, the door to so many different supports and services that they probably would never have thought of before. So it is great seeing the flexibility and the difference from the old block-funded state-based funding that we did have to the NDIS funding where the participant is really in the driver's seat and has so much more opportunity to explore their individual 
goals and and put things in place to try to achieve them. Mm. But it's not a perfect world. And I guess, you know, waving a magic wand, Joe. what would you do to, to try and improve or change or, Ooh. yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about going backwards because I don't believe in that. I believe in we can only help you going forward. I can't change the past, but I can help you going forward. So what, what and it doesn't have to be a fundamental at government level thing, but, you know, what's, what would you do to the NDIS to make it more or a better scheme going forward? Oh, so such a good question. I, I do think it, it's around the access um, is the thing that I would, you know, like to see improve and, and, and equitable access for everybody rather than potential participants and their families having to chase their tail to get diagnosis, et cetera. The whole access system should include diagnosis to take off that level of stress and burden on families that they experience to, to just prove that they do have a disability. Some people go all of their life without visiting a psychologist or or not having uh, interaction with a paediatrician, etc. And then when they go to access the NDIS, they're told that they actually need to have a full functional assessment or a psychological report that states that they do have autism or whatever their diagnosis might be. So I do think the access could be improved to have a more equitable entry point for people where it does include an overarching diagnostic procedure for people to be able to access the NDIS. I think there might be, the NDIS looks like they're sort of going towards that pathway at the moment with the individual assessments, but I think it's too early days to see what that might look like. So just just going to pick up on that point, because the individualised assessments, I thought was a, a, again, it's a new channel of entry into to the scheme, but I thought that that was just really using other resources to, to enable people to access the scheme rather than necessarily being more of an egalitarian approach to it. Because the evidence that I've read is that people are concerned that it's going to be, you know, access or the, the decision around access to individuals will now be given to people who don't have the experience or don't have the knowledge or don't have it. And they're supposed to be making decisions on an individual who has a disability. You, you mentioned it in a positive light. I've, I've read a lot of negativity around it. And I think there's probably both sides of the story. Can you just expand on that for us a little bit? I mean, do you think that it's, it is going to be opening up diagnostics to people who don't have the, the skill set? Oh, I, I really don't know. I, I was being positive. <laughs> I was being positive with that magic wand. And, you know, I know that everything that the NDIS does introduce that when it's in its infancy, it's not perfect and it gets shaped and it evolves into something that, that looks better and, and is more in line what, with what, you know, the disability sector needs. So I guess I'm hopeful that, that that the introduction of the individual assessments will morph into something that is more of an even playing field for everybody um, in regards to a diagnostic entry point for the NDIS. Just following on the original point around access as well, is, is that detrimental if you're on a lower socioeconomic? Is that, what, is that sort of the, what you're saying? So you know, it's, it's easier if you're from a wealthier family to get the psychiatrist, psychologist, and get to get the diagnostic report, get the behaviour reports, get get all the all the all of the, the 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 analysis you need to prove your case. If you're 
you know, not cut from that same cloth or don't have the wherewithal the, the, uh, and ultimately the, the money to pay for those things up front. And most of them do need to be paid. If you're going through the Medicare system, presumably there's wait lists, there's challenges, and there's things getting, there's interventions that are getting in the way. There's, there's things that are blocking you, roadblocks and speed bumps and stuff, stopping you accessing those diagnostics. Is, is that some of the, you know, the detrimental, if you're at a lower socioeconomic, you are potentially restricted from access. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I, I, I think the word potentially is key there because, you know, some families from the lower socioeconomic environments have access through community health and early intervention diagnosis, but that doesn't happen for everyone. And, you know, from, from my experience, it's evident that, you know, people from the, the poorer socioeconomic environments do not have the same access from the people obviously from wealthier families, et cetera, do. So it certainly does hinder their ability to be able to gather the evidence they require and that's expected from that NDIS access point. Mm. And and you did mention that uh, sometimes when the NDIS introduces new, whether it's new categories or new channels, one of the ones I wanted to pick up on, and we had a conversation in private about this, is the recovery, the psychosocial recovery coaches. On the surface, seems like a fantastic channel of support coordination i guess it's a it's a it's a um, it's a new category under the support coordination banner but when we as an organization have tried to determine whether we can offer this it becomes uh, a challenge to find individuals with the coaching skills who can have the professional development and to find a viable financial model for it so it's a, it's an interesting challenge for us as an organization i, I still am 100 committed to us trying to find a solution but that to me is a very clear example of where it's more complicated than a normal support coordinator, but paid less. Uh, and my, my, uh, my question for you is, I guess, wh- where do you see the NDIS? How, how, do, how can you coach the NDIS in, in terms of what, what's the channel for them to, to introduce something like this? And what, what would the solution be for you to, for the recovery coach? Yeah, well, I, I think um, the recovery coach should not take the, the place of support coordination. I think the, and I think that, I heard something on the on the whispers yesterday in regards to that the NDIS now are looking at um, allocating the recovery coach model alongside support coordination. I do hope that that happens because they are two completely different roles. You know, support coordination is about coordinating and connection to services, whereas the recovery coach is all about a person's mental wellness and engaging. It's very specific around mental health. So, you know, there, there are so many people that have dual diagnosis, you know, mental health and physical disability. So I, I would really like to see the agency or the NDIS have a really good look at that. And, you know, it, it would be like funding someone for support coordination that also has access to therapy support so that that recovery coach model falls more within a therapeutic support rather than a coordination support. So ideally, if, yeah, my magic wand approach, Max, that's what I would like to see. <laughs> And we, we've we've touched on a couple of very positive things there, and I think I think you're absolutely right about the recovery coach. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that they've they've sort of it's been a broad brush approach to it, and it should not have been. Having said that, we're all very thankful that there's at least I guess it's 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 on the board, it's made it onto the board now. It's it's a recognition of what we've all been talking about for a very long time in terms of of people's mental wellness. Those are both positive things. I'm going to talk about something quite negative now. Um, you've mentioned profiteering. 
And it's something that, and I mentioned it, but, you know, and, and you know, Care Support, we're a commercial organization. We are a for-profit. We, we are here trying to navigate a commercial success to, in, to enable us to continue to be here next year, in five years, in 10 years. And that's a challenge. But at the same time, profiteering in the NIS. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, and, and look, I understand the NJS price guide and, and where the pricing structure comes from. And, and I think it's really good to have the price guide in regards to the maximum that people and services and supports can charge. In my experience, the profiteering, I mean, it's a really strong word. I don't know whether I should use that word, but I just feel that when people are funded, for example, with their CB daily funding, which is their therapy supports, and and quite often organisations will want to see the person's plan, and that leads to them developing a service agreement that not isn't necessarily a true reflection of what the person needs to access. And so, you know, at, at occupational therapy, you might have the you know recommendation for twenty hours, you know, at one hundred ninety four dollars an hour. And what the person requires is a functional assessment, which usually takes about 10. So that's just an example. And, and, and we have different therapeutic supports, you know, doing the same thing in, you know, recommending physio, for example, half an hour sessions every week. And it's charged at $194 an hour, whereas I'm going to physio at the moment for myself, hurt my ankle the other day, and it's $70 yeah. for my half session. So, you know, I just feel that it has the NDIS price guides opened up a window of opportunity for organisations and individuals to make a significant amount more amount of money than what they would do in just the community sector. Yeah. Um, And then the other side of that is, you know, people working within the NDIS that don't have qualifications or experience in people starting to work as support workers at $54.30 an hour that don't have qualifications, they have an ABN and a first aid certificate and a police check. So I I really struggle with that. I understand organisations need to charge that because they've got the overheads that they have. But an individual that's, you know, uh, working out in community based from home with no qualifications, I, I just feel that there needs to be some kind of governance around that from the NDIS. And yeah, that's, that's just my take on it. And it frustrates yeah, me. I think you're right. Every time that the price guide is released, uh, you'll find uh, new service agreements being issued and the price has just increased. It, you know, it's not, it's the same service and they can charge more, so they will charge more. And as you say, there were there are plenty of those in uh, organizations that, that have gone from the $70 or $80 an hour for a, for a, for a session to the maximum under the price guide. And that's the, that, that's what I think people haven't had the discussion around. That is the maximum that you can charge. It's not what you have to charge. Absolutely. Um, people don't like it when you question them. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of taken it to task a few times with people to say, like, is, are you actually going to charge that maximum rate? Yeah, I, I don't think people, there's not a really clear understanding that it is the maximum. That's not what you have to charge. And, and I think my hope there, I guess, is that, you know, are there going to be organizations that recognize the profitable model of charging less than that? You know, they, they can spread their, yes, organizations have, have head office costs and they have uh, fixed costs that they need to recover against that versus someone who may be just an individual. But maybe there, there is some some room there for uh, organizations to, I guess, part, part, part of that triple bottom line accounting, you know, they're not just about the full bottom line, they're about what is the 
the social impact of what their their, their organization is involved in and how do they i guess uh run a viable model but not at the maximum price guide I, I think you're right there i have to say my biggest concern around the ndis is self-management i think that the ndis has, has a huge opportunity to tighten up self-management financial abuse uh, I, I don't think we've seen even the scratching the surface of the what may come out i don't want to be a naysayer here and i know that there are heaps of self-managed people that do an amazing job i'm not suggesting that this is carte blanche but the fact that you don't need to upload any evidence of the service provided and you don't need to upload much detail around what was being provided, you just get to claim the money back. I think it's just a, a hugely opportune moment for a lot of people that may be struggling financially. And, you know, we've come through COVID, we've, people have lost their jobs, you know, it's been, it's been a real struggle. And just on the COVID, how is uh, Europe in Byron Bay uh, or Ballina? I, I, I don't know that we mentioned that earlier. Um, I have some real concerns for you guys up there. It seems that every man and his dog is coming up your way. How are things up in Ballina, Joe? Yeah, well, we're smack bang in the middle of school holidays where the coastal population here almost triples, I guess. And now that the bubble from Queensland has been extended, so we're now included in the bubble, which means that we can go into Queensland and Queensland can come all the way down to here as well. So it's it's pretty interesting. But everyone in our area seems to be taking the whole COVID thing quite seriously and, and you know, the cafes, shops, etc. you know, it's all sanitised, it's all record your name when you go in, the social yep. distancing is into play, the, you know, the, the table settings, etc. Yeah, everyone seems to be playing by the rules pretty well. They're, you know, the campsites and everything are chock-a-block full. I don't think I'd like to be camping and sharing showers with people at the moment, but, yeah, but... In general, I think our population up here is, you know, really em embrace the rules around COVID quite well. And and hence, like, we haven't had any active cases. The only two cases that we had were two people that returned from Melbourne a couple of months ago. Now. So, yeah. But having said that, is there any, or in your opinion, discernible effects on people's mental health? Are we going to be seeing something that's lasting for years out of this? Because I think, you know, well, beyond the fact that there's a lot of people that have lost their jobs, beyond the fact that people are now experiencing some financial stress, and once job keeper and job seeker goes, then, you know, you know, our mortgage is going to be at risk, our people's rental payments can be at risk, our people will not be able to keep their staff on. Are we going to see some consequences for this, Joe? Yeah, look, this is bringing the politician out of me now. I think there's going to be a massive hangover effect from COVID, you know, and, and I've certainly seen in the participants that I support around their mental health and how they've coped with the, the lockdown and then the isolation and, and their understanding of infection control. You know, a lot of my participants have intellectual disability, so it's really impacted on their lives, not only, you know, around their mental health, but as you said, you know, losing jobs and, and not being able to go and into their supported employment places, et cetera. And then, you know, it's a ripple effect. So um, at the moment with, you know, as you said, the job keeper and, and job seeker, and then we've had the stimulus payments, you know, people have really embraced that, but it's not going to be here to stay. So whereas, you know, the access to the community, they're going back to work, et cetera, is quite staggered and, and quite limited. So, you know, depending on how long that's going to last in, in our communities, it, it could have a, quite a detrimental effect for, you know, for the people that we support, including ourselves. So, you know, and I think everyone, that face-to-face -face contact, you don't realise, like I caught up with uh, Lulu the day before yesterday. Physically, we actually met together and we had a coffee. Lulu works for Oscare, And we had a hug. 
you know, it's like, oh, my God, I can hug you. Like (laughs) we take those simple things for granted. And, yeah, so... Yeah, be, watch this space, I guess, with the whole COVID stuff. We, we just don't know what's around the corner. Mm. And, and, look, I think that's entirely true. We don't know what's around the corner. We, however, Joe, feel very lucky that we have you on board. I know that you've said to me here, as you say, and I mentioned earlier, you don't like the accolades. And, uh, yeah, the, so, yeah, you, you really just enjoy, uh, I guess, the, the, the reactions and the, uh, and the consequences that you engender in the individuals that you support. Well, I can tell you hand on heart that everybody that you support internally at Oscare Support and, uh, and upwards and downwards, both, both your team, all of your team members really appreciate having you on board. It's, uh, as I say, we feel very lucky that, um, that you're part of this, uh, this process, this journey with Oscare support i'm excited about the future i feel really that um that what we have or what we set out to achieve to a greater or lesser extent we are uh, are starting to i guess refine our model we're trying to find who is successful we only want to be engaging obviously with people that will be successful at oscare support there's no value in us bringing on people that are not going to be successful and one of the things that you and i have started to work on albeit that it's probably a bit of a passion project of mine is the idea that we're working on this developmental team basis and i'm going to ask you just because i'm personally curious i guess if you fast forward a couple of years what what does that developmental team basis look like for oscare support support coordinators how, how, what does that yeah what does it what does it look like what's what's what are we putting out on the on the glossy brochures look i i think you know moving forward in in regards to that space around the developmental teams is is increasing confidence and increasing knowledge but also you know we work so autonomously at oscare and we're so spread out but the big thing for me is bringing people together in a virtual way, and we're already seeing the the impact with the coach's role of the team not feeling as distant and not feeling as isolated, and bringing that culture together. So, really, being quite a, a important part of growing the business is having teams that are positive and learn from their mistakes, learn from the differences, acknowledge it. Real people doing real things and and great things. And yeah, I think it's a really great opportunity for for our support coordination teams and as individuals to really shine and acknowledge their mistakes. I really like that idea around, you know, what what do we do? What can we do better? What will we do next time? Sharing that and growing. So yeah, does that answer? <laughs> I just feel that, yeah, there's a little... I, I, I believe there is a huge opportunity. I believe that we, not just us, I think there are lots of other organizations that are doing this well. So I'm not saying that we're the sort of torchbearer, but I think if we as an organization and those other people that are doing it well and in conjunction with DSC, you know, who I think are just an amazing organization, if we can drive forward best in practice of support coordination and as collectively as a cohort and, and in individually as an organization, we can drag, um, you know, support coordination up. And I say that as a very esoteric concept, up, well, up to where, up to what. Uh, I think if we can drag it up and make it best in practice, then I think the, you know, the NDIS is better off for it. We're better off for it. Our organization, the people we support, and, and and as I say, people that look at us and go, well, how do we compete with challenge? We're up against Oscare support. Well, we've got to up our game. And I think that's a good thing. Joe, I'm going to wrap it up there. I think it's been a fantastic, amazing chat to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I know, as I say, you're very busy. You mentioned here three things that you would eradicate in the world. Do you remember what you said? Yeah, <laughs> I said illness, greed and hate. 
And I think if we could if we could get rid of those, that would be amazing. And the three things you would keep at all costs, Joe. Uh, it's without a doubt would be my family and my fur kids and my values. And I, I think those three things are all to be, you know, I guess cherished, as you say. Joe McIntyre, Ozcare Support Coordinator, coach, amazing individual. Yeah, mum, grandmum. <laughs> carer of fur kids thank you so much for your time today it's been amazing i really appreciate you taking the time to catch up if you are interested in more podcasts they will be coming joe was our first but certainly not our last thank you very much joe mcintyre it's a pleasure max thank you i hope you've enjoyed listening to rock solid people for more interviews stay tuned